If you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 17, we'll be reading verses 1 to 15. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphibibus and Apolloni, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Christ whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard the learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by the sea. But, Paul, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, as human beings, we tend to be resistant to new ideas that would alter our way of life. There's a psychological principle called the Semmelweis reflex, and the Semmelweis reflex is defined this way, as a metaphor for the reflex-like tendency to reject new evidence or new knowledge because it contradicts established norms, beliefs, or paradigms. Tendency to reject ideas that are new that might alter our way of life. You've probably heard uh, or seen dozens of times in the last few months signs that say, wash your hands. You've seen signs like that maybe on TV. You've seen them uh, in stores that you go into. You maybe heard, uh, you know, seen television advertisements. And, you know, I'd look at those advertisements and, you know, see this simple thing that it says, wash your hands. And part of me is like, do we really need to tell people that? Is it not evident that in the midst of a pandemic, we know how germs are spread, wouldn't it be kind of obvious that we should wash our hands? I mean, it seems like a really simple, straightforward, basic kind of thing. It's one of the first things we're taught as children. Wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Wash your hands before dinner. But it wasn't always that simple. It wasn't always that straightforward, which brings us to the story of a man named Ignis Semmelweis. Ignaz Semmelweis was an obstetrician, Hungarian obstetrician in the 19th century. And during his day and age, they had a different view of disease than we have today. Primarily, they believed in what was called the miasma theory. And the miasma theory taught that uh, disease was often caused by bad odors, bad smells. So if you were in, the, in a morgue or a place where there were corpses and there was that rotted smell of death, you were potentially, could potentially get sick from that smell. If you were outside at a, maybe a pond where you know, it was kind of stinky and there was organic matter in there, you could get sick from that pond. 
If you're outside, even uh, on the grass, there could be uh, these smells that came out of the ground that could make one sick. And so they believed in these various odors that caused disease. Uh, that's kind of, they also believed that cold air could cause disease, which is probably the remnants of that is why we say don't go out in the cold, you'll, you'll get sick. So they believed that the cold air caused sickness. And uh, once someone got sick, it was believed that the sickness acted by disrupting the four humors of the body. The four humors were kind of different substances that were in the body, and disease kind of threw those uh, off balance. And the way that they dealt with those, that uh, unbalance, is a process called bloodletting. And bloodletting was kind of similar to acupuncture or acupressure today in that there were kind of different zones on the body that represented different functions. And whereas in acupuncture or acupressure, they might put a needle in those spots, with bloodletting, they would cut a hole and you'd bleed from that spot, and that was said to kind of regain equilibrium for the body. So that's kind of the background that Semmelweis is, is working with. That was kind of the general understanding of disease, although they believed that diseases could be caused by various other different things as well, some of them even spiritual. But Ignaz Semmelweis, as a young doctor, was working at a maternity ward, and at the, in this maternity ward, there were two wings. One of them was governed by doctors, and one was governed by midwives. And what was remarkable was that the one that was governed by the midwives, they had, the, the, the patients had a much, much lower mortality rate than the ones that was assisted by doctors. And they were very confused by this because the doctors had a lot more training, went to school, and yet the midwives had much better success. Specifically, uh, many women in the doctor's wing were getting a disease called childbed fever. And uh, so Semmelweis was very concerned about this and wanted to figure out what the difference was between what they were doing as doctors and what the midwives were doing. And so he tried to figure out the differences. And one thing he noticed first was that uh, with the midwives, the, the women would give birth on their side, but with the doctors, they would give birth on their back. And so he switched that. He had the doctors uh, have them give birth on their sides, but it was the same result. Then he thought to himself, well, the priest comes through after someone gets childbed fever and dies. The priest come through, comes through and rings a bell. When he rings the bell, he thought maybe this bell throws the other women into this kind of hysteria and causes them to get sick and die as well. Well, he told the, the priest to change his course, to stop ringing the bell, and everything stayed the same. Same mortality rate, higher with the doctors than with, with the midwives. And he was just frustrated that all these women were dying, getting sick. He had no idea why it was happening. So he thought he'd go and clear his mind. He went to Venice just to, as a vacation. Then he came back, and when he came back, he found that one of his colleagues, a pathologist, had passed away. Pathologists during that day and age were commonly passed away, and they probably believed that it was because they were working with corpses, and so those bad order, odors would kind of uh, go into their body and cause them to have disease. So this particular individual was doing an autopsy, he pricked his finger, and then he got this disease and died. It happened to be a per the person that he was doing an autopsy on was a woman who had childbed fever. So Semmelweis looked a little bit closer and he determined that this person, this pathologist, he had the same symptoms as this woman. So he realized it isn't just women, that men can get this as well. And so then he looked a little bit further and he discovered the difference between the midwives and the doctors. 
The doctors did autopsies, went to the morgue, the midwives didn't. And what was happening was the doctors in that day and age didn't have any rubber gloves, didn't have any sanitation, so they would go and they'd be cutting open these people who had died, who are filled with pus and disease, putting their hands all in it, and then going and delivering babies. And they go from patient to patient to patient, never washing their hands, never wearing gloves. Now, Semmelweis didn't understand exactly why this was happening, but what he theorized was there was microscopic uh, cadaverous material that was on uh, the doctor's hands that they were spreading to these women. So the way he theorized to deal with this was to wash one's hands in a chlorine solution. Now, we know that chlorine is one of the best antiseptics that we have, but in his day and age, he thought of it as just kind of being an odor remover, the best thing to remove smells. And so he started washing his hands in this chlorine solution, and the results were dramatic. In April 1847, in the doctor's wing, the mortality rate among women was 18.3%. They instituted this hand washing in the middle of May. Then by June, it went down to 2.2% mortality. It was an astonishing result. The funny thing about it was his views were largely rejected or ignored. In fact, one editor of Medical Journal remarked sarcastically that it was time for people to stop being led by the theory of chlorine washings. Another obstetrician called his ideas naive. For the most part, his ideas were rejected. He got angrier and angrier as his life went on. He wasn't probably the best communicator, and he started attacking his opponents. Eventually, it was said that he went mad. He was lured into going into an insane asylum, and when he recognized what was happening, he tried to escape, and he was severely beaten, put in a straitjacket. Two weeks later, he died. The Association of Physicians and Natural Scientists specified that a commemorative address be delivered in the honor of any member who died in the preceding year. But for Semmelweis, there was no address. His death was not even mentioned. So you think about this as a very simple thing, hand washing, putting one's hands in chlorine, basic hygiene, didn't cost a lot, didn't, there wasn't a lot of risk involved with it, and yet it was rejected. And the reason it was rejected is because the doctors had been trained their whole life to think about things one way, to think about healing diseases with these four humors and bloodletting and bringing equilibrium. And so if they were going to believe that hand washing could make that much different, they were going to have to rethink all that they knew about medicine and believe that there was really one cause of this disease. Not only that, they were going to have to take responsibility because now if that was the case, it would mean that they were the ones that were causing these women to get sick. And so for the most part, they rejected this teaching. In short, it would have caused the entire medical establishment to be overturned, and as a result, most decided to reject this new discovery. And I think that the Jews in Thessalonica respond in a similar way. It says in the text that the Jews were jealous, that they take some wicked men from the crowd, they form a mob, and then they drag Jason and some Christians before the authorities, and then what do they say? They say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. In short, Paul and his companions are asking 
the, asking the Jews and, and the people at large to accept a Jesus who will turn their world upside down. If Jesus was really who he said he was, if he was the Messiah, the Son of God, who had died on the cross and risen from the dead, then that meant the Jews were going to have to reevaluate what they thought about the Scriptures. They were going to have to reevaluate who they were. It says in the text they were jealous. jealous. In, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus showed that they were often hypocritical. And so they were going to have to reinterpret what they believe about the Scriptures, and they're going to have to take some responsibility for their actions if they're going to accept Jesus. And more or less, for the most part, they reject Him. It's just too much for them to accept. Too much to accept a suffering Messiah. Too much to accept responsibility for leading the people astray. But it's not just the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles too. Because if the Gentiles are going to believe in the gospel, it, ha it means that they have to believe that there is a Lord that's higher than Caesar. That there's a king that's above Caesar. And, no, and in this text, the people who were accusing Paul and, and Silas and, and, and the brethren were in a sense kind of dishonest because Jesus and Paul were not teaching an overthrow of the government. Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. And yet there had to be this fundamental assertion that Jesus is king and Jesus is above Caesar. And again, people have a hard, hard time recognizing that. It says in the text that the, these teachings disturbed the people. And as a result, Paul and Silas had to flee the city in the night. As human beings, we're often resistant to new ideas that would alter our way of life. And yet that's exactly what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to leave our old ways of life behind. If we're going to believe in Jesus, it means that our whole world will be overturned, that what we thought was important, what we thought was right before, we recognize was the wrong way. The gospel doesn't call, Jesus, uh, call us to fit Jesus into our framework doesn't call us to put God into our story. We often talk about inviting Jesus into our life. And that's a, I understand where that's coming from. I've used that phrase before, but it's probably not the most accurate because we don't invite Jesus to come into our life. We don't invite him to come in and then we put him in a place like we have our career here, our family here, all these different categories, and then we put Jesus into one of our categories. No, Jesus wants all of our life. He is over all. And no matter if we accept Him or don't accept Him, He is still the King and Lord over all creation. And He's inviting us into His story. It's not about us putting Him into our categories. It's us surrendering and coming into His story and saying, you are the Lord and you are King of kings and Lord of lords. A.B. Simpson shares a story about an eccentric English evangelist who preached on the text that we're looking at today for an open-air sermon and he began by saying this he says first the world is wrong side up second the world must be turned upside down third we are the men to set it right simpson said this in the man's quaint phrases this is really the purpose of the gospel it's god's way of making them right jesus didn't come to the world and say hey you guys are doing a great job just keep up the good work now he came to the earth and he said, you're lost, but you can be found. You're hungry, but you can be filled. You're sinful, but you can be made righteous. You're dead, but you can be made alive. And that's the hope and that's the glory of the gospel. But it's a message not always easy for some people to hear. 
And so that's why many people reject the gospel because it, it calls us to go into that story. It calls us to change. And oftentimes we'd rather just stay where we're at. But I think it's not just for unbelievers. It's not just unbelievers who do that, but I think as believers we can do the same thing or something similar. There's a Dutch reformer from the 17th century. His name was Jodocus von Lodenstein. And he wrote this. He said, The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed by the Word of God. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the Word of God. As a church, we're always in need of being reformed by the Word of God. So it doesn't matter how many times we've read the Bible or a passage in the Bible, we're always in need of grace. We're always in need of a word from God. It's not that the message changed. The message is the same, but we approach it from a different viewpoint, from a different angle. And maybe what God has to say to us today is not what He had to say to us five years ago or what He'll have to say to us five years from now. And so God speaks to us through His Word and the message stays the same, but His Word is living and active and meets us where we're at. And so we're in the constant need of being challenged, being reformed by the Word of God. Sometimes as believers, I think we can grow comfortable. Especially if we've been believers for a long time, we can get to a place where we feel like we have the kind of trajectory of the Scriptures down. We know the story. We know basically what Scriptures say. And we feel like, all right, I'm just trying to do the best I can. I don't... I know what I should be doing generally, so I don't really need to be in the Scriptures. And yet each day, God wants to form us, reform us by His Word, to bring us back to the place where we're, our hearts are following after Him, to check our sinfulness. It's not just simply an academic exercise. Sometimes we come at it with this attitude, I, I just want to learn something new about the Bible. I just want to learn about Peter or Paul or or learn something about God's Word. That's a good thing to do. But we don't come to God's Word simply to learn facts, learn knowledge. We come to meet with God and be transformed by God. But I think sometimes it's easier to be comfortable than it is to be changed. It's easier to stay where we're at and assume everything is going well than to be changed by the Gospel. Author Dallas Willard tells how he grew up in southern Missouri and when he was growing up, there wasn't any electricity. But when he was in high school, the uh, Rural Electrification Administration extended the lines into the area. And suddenly, electricity was available to the homes and farms in the area. And the fact that electricity was there just completely transformed their way of life. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like. We go for you know, a day without electricity and we're all freaking out. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to live life your whole life without electricity. And so bringing electricity into the town is going to fundamentally reorient and change how they viewed life. I mean, you think about just the light and the darkness and the fact that you, you kind of have to go by the seasons. You can't, you, know, you can't do things outside or really inside very much if it's dark out. It was a fundamental reorientation of life, mostly for the better. He says that most people willingly accepted electricity into their lives. They got sewing machines and washing machines, refrigerators, electric lights. But there were some people who held on, 
who didn't accept electricity. And they kept their cellars and ice boxes, manual sewing machines, kerosene lamps. And they felt as if it was too expensive or they simply didn't want to change. Willard says, sometimes it's difficult to accept change even if the change is for the better, even if that change would bring us life. Sometimes we'd rather be comfortable than changed. So many in, Thess in Thessalonica rejects Paul's messages, especially the Jews. But then he goes on to Berea, and the situation in Berea is completely different. It says in Berea, uh, they were reading the scriptures da daily. They accept the gospel with eagerness. They read the scriptures daily to see if these things that Paul and his associates are preaching are true. And so in the Bereans' mind, it's not about the change, it's about the truth. It doesn't matter how much change is required, how much they have to turn if it's in line with God's Word. And so they search the Scriptures and say, is what Paul saying true? Is this truly the Son of God who came to the earth, died on the cross, rose again? And if that's true, we want to be on board. We want to walk with God in obedience. That should be our attitude as we approach God's Word. There's no change that's too great. And yet the question is, are we like those Bereans? Are we studying God's Word? Are we applying that Word to our lives? The Bible in America study reports that 62% of the people in the communities surrounding our churches would like to read the Bible more. Another study reports 87% of the people in our churches want help understanding the Bible better. Yet Bible reading is waning. Recent studies demonstrate that in one generation, the number of occasional Bible readers has fallen by 20%, the equivalent of 700 people per day. This trend continues. By 2040, two-thirds of Americans will have no meaningful connection with the Bible. The Barna Group did a survey. They released the results last year. And in the survey, they asked people a bunch of questions. And based on their responses to these questions, they kind of characterized them uh, and put them in different groups of how they understand and how they relate to Scripture. And we have a chart that I think we can throw up here. If you look at this chart, the people on your far right, Bible disengaged, represents 48% of Americans. 48% of Americans have uh, very little, if any, uh, exposure to Scripture. Then you move up and you have the uh, people who are Bible neutral. These people are not opposed to the Bible. That's 9% of Americans. They may read it here and there, but it has very little effect on their life. Then you have Bible-friendly people. Bible-friendly people are people who uh, may read the Bible now and, now and again. They might put a verse on Facebook. They might have a, a verse in, on their walls in their home. They have a fondness toward the Scripture, but they don't allow it to affect their lives. Then we have the uh, Bible-engaged. Bible-engaged person reads the Bible. It transforms their life, but perhaps it doesn't have the importance when it comes to making decisions. That's 19% of Americans. And finally, we have 5% of Americans who interact with the Bible frequently, who allow the Bible to inform their choices, to impact their relationship with God and their relationship with others. So another way of putting this chart here is that 76% of Americans do not allow God's Word to transform them. 
And the only real ones that are really in tune with this are Bible-engaged and Bible-centered. And I would suggest that many people in churches in America are under that Bible-friendly category. They've heard God's Word. They listen to sermons. Then now and again they'll read God's Word. Maybe they read a Christian book, but they don't allow it to influence their behavior. It's like what James says, being hearers, but not doers. So today I'd ask you, which category do you fall into? God is calling us to be people of the Word, people who read the Scriptures daily, searching to know what God would have us to do, and reading Scripture so that we would meet, be able to meet with God. Billy Graham was one of the most famous Christians of the 20th century, and uh, he had one of the most remarkable ministries of anybody in the history of the church. He preached to more people in person than anybody ever, including, you know, the Apostle Paul, I mean, preached to millions and millions and millions of people, and millions of people gave their life to Christ through the ministry of Billy Graham. But near the end of his life, I think it was uh, on his like 90th birthday, 92nd birthday, he shared some regrets that he had, things that he would like to do different. And one of those regrets he shares here. He says, one of my great regrets is that I have not studied enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less. People have pressured me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing. I would also spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I'd spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my life. I mean, it's remarkable you think about this man who was so used of God, who was so obedient to God, and yet near the end of his life he says, I, I wish I would have said no to preaching sometimes. I wish I would have spent more time hearing from God. I think back to March when we were kind of in the full swing of the whole coronavirus pandemic. And I remember early on, it was like we had no idea what was going on, and we got some numbers coming out of Italy that suggested that maybe the mortality rate was, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent of people, which is uh, actually much, much, much lower. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know how it was spread. We didn't know what was going to be happening to our society. We were just starting to enter into the lockdown. And I don't know if you were like me, but I was like glued to the news watching the news on TV, reading it on my phone, just trying to figure out, so how are we going to live in this new reality? And what is it going to look like a day from now or a week from now? And how can we prevent this from happening? How can we prevent ourselves from getting this disease? And I was just glued to the news. Now think about that, and it's like, what if we were approaching God's Word with the same kind of desperation? You know, I, you know, we approach this coronavirus as we need to know how we're going to live in this reality. What if we approach God's word in the same way if, God, I need to know how I should live in this world. God, I need to meet with you if I'm going to be effective in what you're calling me to do. What if we had that same desperation when it comes to reading God's word? But I think we have good intentions. I think sometimes what happens is we'll start reading God's word and the first day will be good, the second day will be good, and then the third day we'll open up to Ezekiel, and, which is like my least favorite book in the Bible, 
and they're talking about these weird prophecies and genealogies, and we have no idea what's happening. And then we're like, uh, I feel like I'm wasting my time here. And so we get tripped up because I think that sometimes we feel like when we open up the Bible, we're supposed to always have these spiritual highs. And we're supposed to always just feel these, these warm feelings and closeness to God. And we feel like that's what Bible reading is about. That's what a quiet time is about. And if you don't have those warm feelings, if you don't understand everything, then you're wasting your time. But God calls us to obedience. And sometimes God will take those things, maybe you don't understand them now, but maybe a month from now or a year from now, somehow God will use those things. I mean, I, I, I look back on Scripture and sometimes things that maybe 10 years ago I just had no understanding of, no conception of, and then, you know, 5, 10 years later, suddenly it just makes sense. And we have more resources in our country than anybody in the history of the world. We have so many resources to study God's Word. I mean, you think about people, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it's like if you owned a copy of God's Word, that was amazing. And now everybody can own a copy of God's Word. You know, we have commentaries and study Bibles. Study Bibles is a great, a study Bible is a great place to start. You know, if you don't have a good study Bible, one I recommend is the ESV study Bible, but there's so many good ones that are available. Doing whatever we can to understand and apply God's Word, because that's what God calls us to. That's what's going to change us. And just as an aside, it's not enough to listen to a message or read a Christian book. I mean, sometimes we can, you know, get involved in Christian things and you know, listening to a message or a podcast, that's great. Reading Christian book, it, it, that's great. But it's not a substitute for being in God's Word. It's like if I asked you, so, hey, are you going to watch the Bills game on Sunday? And you said, well, I, I don't think I really need to watch the Bills game because afterwards there is a post-game show. And I'm just going to turn on the post-game show. Now, if you turned on the post-game show, you'd probably get bits and pieces of what happened. You'd probably find the score of the game, but it's an entirely different experience than watching the game from beginning to end. And the same thing is true with being in God's Word. Christian books, messages are not enough. We need to be reading the Word of God, learning for ourselves, checking what we read, checking what we hear, and seeing if it lines up with God's Word and allowing it to change us. Hayden Robinson late preacher said this, the people involved in the public relations department of the church always make Bible study sound as though it's easy. It is not. It takes a great deal of effort to understand this text and even more to understand how it applies to our lives. And I thought this was very insightful. He says, we like to think that when we study the Bible, it's like getting a shot of spiritual adrenaline. It gives us a spiritual high. He says, studying the Bible is much more like taking vitamins. You gulp down a couple of vitamins in the morning, but no wave of energy flows through your body. You take the vitamins because they build you up. They protect you against the diseases in the environment. In the long pull, they make you strong. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be people of the Word. Sometimes it's easier to be comfortable than it is to be changed, but as a church, let's fight against that. Let's, as uh, Jodicus Van Lodenstein said, Let's always be reformed according to the Word of God. Looking at the Scripture saying, is my life in line with what God says? And if not, how can I walk in obedience? I'd like to close with 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. It says this, 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that the word is power to us, that through your Holy Spirit you change us. Through your Holy Spirit you meet with us. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the word. Not simply people who are Bible friendly, who post a Bible verse on Facebook, who have a verse on our walls at home but people who are changed and transformed by your word. People who come to your word with a desperation that we need to hear from you. We need to hear your voice. We need to meet with you. Lord, give us strength. Give us perseverance for those times when we open up the Bible and maybe we don't understand completely what we're reading. Give us the strength to be obedient because we know that when we're obedient, you'll form us, you'll change us, you'll strengthen us through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.